Welcome to the weekly podcast from Rethink Energy. I'm the CEO, Peter White, and I have here with me, Harry Morgan, uh, Senior Analyst on uh, Rethink Energy, and Andres Montanar, uh, also Analyst on Rethink Energy. We're going to talk through the top stories in this week's issue of Rethink Energy. Our big story of the week is, I mean, the way everyone's phrased it, is uh, BP is uh, juicing its dividend. but there's a lot more to that. It's got a huge change of direction. Harry Morgan covered the story for us. Harry. Yeah, I mean, it came off to sort of speculation that we were talking about in last week's podcast about BP cutting its dividend. And the, the news that they've almost tried to hide this behind is this shift to a very renewable heavy strategy. The plan is obviously to up their spending of renewable up to sort of five billion per year by 2030, which is roughly a third of their total, total capital expenditure up from sort of 5% today. So it could be seen as sort of the first real move we've seen for BP in actually delivering its net zero promises. Well, other newspapers covered it as, as if it was some kind of revolution. You know, that, that, that finally one of the oil companies is making sense. I think what we can see is it's the first oil major that's doing this. I mean, Orsted very much took this approach 10 years ago and like really piled all of their money into offshore wind and sort of sold off all of their oil and gas assets. So it's not the first company that's going through this energy transition, it's just the first oil major that's doing it. Do you think they can follow the Austin pattern? I hope so, I think so. Obviously they've got a larger transition to go through and they've been less aggressive in saying how they're going to do this. Obviously the bulk of their spending will still be in upstream oil and gas, but it's certainly a positive step. So if I'm a, if I'm a developer right now and I've got a project, do I fear BP or do I offer it to them? I think you offer it to them. I don't think um, BP will be looking to become a sort of technological giant in the sector. Similarly, I don't think they're going to put their money into developing new projects. I think they'll very much look to become the owner of that project um, and sign a PPA with whoever wants to buy the energy from it. So that means that this, that, you know, this is five billion more dollars that's going to accelerate renewable growth, and that's why we're writing about oil every week because we see once those oil majors do change their mind, they may. Yeah, you know, we've seen it in the past where they lost their appetite for it and moved back to oil, but this time it feels different. Yeah, I still think there is a way that they can move back to oil. Um, I mean, we saw. This week, the EIS published their oil figures and showing that there's actually been a, a large reduction in oil production, especially in the US. Um, and that caused this spike in oil price up to around $45 per barrel, um, which everyone obviously got really excited about in the oil sector. But that $45 is nowhere near the $70 it was pre-COVID. So if this is the extent that oil is going to recover, then there's no way that there's going to be any profitability in oil at any point in the future. And that's pretty much... What we've been pushing for the last couple of weeks. Okay, so the you know, the other, other story which you had, Andres, I was quite intrigued about is um, nobody else seems to have picked this up. The quarterly numbers on solar installs for China are, are out this week. Uh, yes, yeah, I got this off um, the Chinese, of course, and China's National Energy Administration released the figures for the first half of the year. And since we know what was installed in the first quarter, that means we have the second quarter as well. And it was uh, 7.5 gigawatts of solar, which is higher than the equivalent quarter of last year. Uh, in fact, the first, any, each of the three quarters, uh, first three quarters of 2019 as well. Uh, so it shows that solar is going to be a lot bigger this year than most people had thought. And it could be as high as 45 gigawatts. That's the optimistic estimates that are now being seen. Now, we put out a, a forecast on this, and didn't we have China this year more like 
Yes. That's that's going to suck up another ten gigawatts of panels uh, in inside China than uh, than was expected. Yeah, and um, Chinese subsidies are they've already been reduced quite a bit. They're not that high anymore. Uh, but this is the last year that you can benefit from them. Uh, so you, probably um, as much, maybe as much as twenty gigawatts will be installed in the last quarter by itself as they try to rush in ahead of that uh, termination. So if you could easily get over 40 gigawatts and perhaps as high as 45, that's, you know, is that good for the rest of the world? Or does that just, um, you know, last week we were writing about what would be the problems if China dumps cheap panels because we know their manufacturing has, has accelerated onto the sort of unsuspecting world and all we're seeing was tariffs. There's, there's more issues with, with uh, India talking about tariffs against uh, Chinese solar panels. I mean, can India really survive without uh, Chinese solar panels? Well, it'll certainly be pretty rocky for a bit if they do that, because um, the, the the level of tariffs that you have to put on Chinese uh, imports is something like 30% for both the US and India. Uh, otherwise, it's still more efficient to buy them rather than manufacture them yourself. Uh, and in India doesn't have these um, these new big ones, the, the the larger scale ones, which are more efficient, especially for utilities. And it's, it's pointless building building uh, installations which are, aren't state of the art. You know, you've, you've got you're going to sit there for twenty five years. You want them the most advanced you can make them. So you're quite you're quite right. It's it's better to go for the big new ones. So we're expecting those numbers to accelerate throughout the year and a big stonking last quarter in China. Well, we'll we'll see if that comes about. Now, earlier in the week, we had our um, webinar on um, on hydrogen. Uh, Harry led that webinar, uh, and we talked to... Well, Harry, talk us through. Who, who did you talk to in, in your webinar this week? So we spoke to some people from sort of across the hydrogen production sector. So um, instead of sort of fo so focusing solely on green versus blue hydrogen, we tried to pull in people looking at it from a more sort of innovative approach. We had Nell, who were obviously more of a baseline, sort of the traditional uh, lecture slides style projects. Then we had Anapta, looking at a more distributed approach. And then we had um, Jean-Louis Kindler from Waste to H, who was talking about sort of a gasification of waste process um, to produce hydrogen. And then we had uh, Proton Technologies, which is this really interesting company in Canada at the moment that are trying to exploit these abandoned oil wells um, and produce hydrogen by heating those without re releasing any CO2 from underground. Why would, why would, so coming back to the first story for a second, why would not someone like BP go and buy that company and then exploit their oil, oil wells and dominate the hydrogen market? This is it. Um, I mean, while speaking to Grant Strem from Proton, he's saying that there's absolutely no interest currently from these oil majors. And the, the main interest they're seeing is from these renewables companies who are trying to build a presence in um, the green power sector. I think BP could now start looking at these sort of projects. It's the kind of, and they are the companies that can afford this sort of massive captured investment that will then return huge levels of finance. I mean, the, the figures that Grant state, stated is something like, if you put in 100 billion worth of investment, you'll get annual revenues of around 220 billion from that. So if that's true, that's something that can, could really accelerate BP's transition. Well, if that's the kind of margin that you're, you're going to get, that's the, yeah, yeah, it's not, not exactly a transition, is it? It's a, Go back to the same old business, but it's clean. Yeah, I mean, if I was sat in front of Bernard Looney now, that's exactly what I'd be talking to. Um, and that's exactly where we'll sort of start to see these sort of Tesla style approaches through the development of the hydrogen economy. Right, 
yeah, well, but by, by the Tesla approaches, you mean uh, getting a, a stock that starts to fly away from its fundamentals, and and everyone just suddenly realizes, oh my God, they've got it right. Let's buy. Let's buy. Let's buy. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that we we need to sort of maybe draw a line between Tesla and a startup. I think we need to think that it can be an existing company that will suddenly jump in and take the market by storm, um, providing it can transition quickly enough. Um, so if BP suddenly did decide that I, it was going to go fully green, then we could see a, a sort of Tesla-style stock growth even within BP. Wow, that would be amazing. But it's culturally unlikely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see if we can reach over to those guys in BP and uh, suggest this. Um, we are, we, we've been plugged into one or two of them over there. Um, but what about the, the hydrogen stories from this week that you, you uh, put in the issue? Yeah, so actually one of them came sort of off the back of something that um, Luke Grower of Nell said during the webinar. Um, he very much pushed the idea that we need this sort of hydrogen ecosystem. Um, so obviously I put a, bit, a few sort of feelers out and came across this new project um, that's actually been talked about quite a lot through the week, which is the West Coast project in, in Germany being developed by Orsted. Um, it's, only, it's quite a small project, it's only 30 megawatts sort of in a pilot stage uh, before potentially being expanded to 700 megawatts. Um, but the really exciting thing behind it is that it's testing all sorts of things around the hydrogen sector at the moment. Um, so it's going to probably use one of Orsted's offshore wind farms, so it'll be interesting to see how that works. Um, and the aim of it is going to be to replace these feedstocks for synthetic methanol, which would then be used for kerosene for, uh, for jet fuel. Would that jet fuel have less carbon in it, or would it have none in it, or...? Uh, theoretically, if they use um, if they can use biofuel alongside it, it could be carbon negative, um, which is sort of one of the most promising avenues in terms of decarbonising the aviation sector looks like at the moment. But also the the sort of infrastructure of surrounding the project is really interesting. So you've got um, the fact that they're going to use salt caverns in northern Germany to actually store the hydrogen. They're going to try and use the existing pipeline infrastructure they've got for grey hydrogen to transport the hydrogen, um, and they're going to try and sort of generate more revenue from other aspects of the project. So they'll be selling the oxygen from the project to a nearby cement plant. They'll be selling the excess heat to a local uh, district heating network. So it'll be really interesting to see how the project develops in terms of building sort of a, a full project approach rather than just trying to develop an electrolyzer system that would generate your solar green hydrogen and then working out what you're going to do. Right, yeah. I mean, but, but the fact that it's going to take five years to move on from a 30 megawatt um, pilot stage into something of serious size it's just it seems to be cumbersome and slow i mean i know they've got to get it right because they've got to get all the efficiencies into the system before they go large but at the same time it's like watching paint dry and i suspect some uh, younger organizations will move ahead of yeah it. definitely i think this is more sort of a proof of concept that we need to keep an eye on um, obviously we'll see loads of green hydrogen projects popping up in sort of a more aggressive way, actually supplying the demand straight off the bat on a larger scale. Um, but this could be sort of a, a more of a blueprint for how Europe decides to build out its full hydrogen ecosystem on sort of a continent-wide scale. Yeah, and, and on the European ecosystem, we, we talked a lot about Portugal last week, and you got a piece on Spain uh, development into hydrogen this week. Yeah, so it's, um, it's more of the same, really. It's just another hydrogen strategy. Um, as we've seen it from Portugal, we've seen it from Netherlands, we've seen one from Germany. Uh, we're seeing some, some starting to form in France, but the one we saw this week uh, came from Spain. I said the, the plan is to roughly to power around 8.9 billion euros into their hydrogen infrastructure, and they're for around 4 gigawatts of electrolyzers to be in place, which means they'll be supplying around 10% of Europe's uh, electrolyzers by 2030. Uh, beyond that, it's, it's just more of the same. It's more fuel cell buses, it's more fuel cell vehicles. 
And so that's the, that's the real focus that Spain's put on is, is on this early build out of um, hydrogen mobility. And trying to punch above its kind of population weight uh, in the EU, you know, more 10% would be way more than uh, uh, than Spain um, contributes to, to the, the EU budget. So it's trying to be a leader. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think Portugal and Spain are obviously these really exciting candidates for the hydrogen transition. They've got really low cost solar. Um, and as we said, so the end of each of our articles to Spain and Portugal, they've got, they're really near this sort of boundary with North Africa. Um, so if we're really going to try and get half of our electrolyzed capacity from North Africa, they provide this really good gateway into the rest of Europe and could end up being a sort of hydrogen um, hub, really. But how do they physically move that uh, move hydrogen from Africa? Is that a pipeline? Um, well, there's not a pipeline there yet, but they, I mean, they'll certainly have to be if they're going to have this amount of uh, hydrogen coming from North Africa. So we look for a project coming up with a big spend on uh, a pipeline from, from Africa to Europe. Yeah, definitely. Sometime over the next couple of years. Okay, I think that's all we've got time for today. Uh, Aaron's going to go through the, um, the, some of the shorter items. Um, remember, you can buy uh, um, Rethink Energy at um, www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click on the Energy button and all the purchasing options are there. Thanks and bye. Yeah, just around this week's podcast then. This week and the rest of the issue, we saw Dominion Energy CEO Thomas Farrell uh, not actually stepping down from his role as CEO, uh, but actually stepping up to the role of chairman, which would actually could be quite a positive thing for Dominion. Um, he seems very on side with their transition to renewables. Uh, we also have a similar transition for Evergy, which is uh, taking down its for sale sign, as Peter put it, and decided to, again, accelerate itself to become a decarbonised utility. Uh, in wind power, we've seen uh, General Electric this week actually trying to hold back Siemens Gamesa from the US market by brandishing some intellectual property rights. Um, this could well end up backfiring uh, if Siemens decides to retaliate in markets outside of the US where it has a much stronger market share. Uh, we also have a great feature piece written by Andres on Vast, so there's an uh, approach to distributed towers for concentrated solar power. Um, I definitely recommend that to, uh, to anyone in that sector. Finally, in energy storage, we have Startup Vector planning to establish a $2 billion factory for battery cells with a capacity around 16 gigawatt hours by 2023. Uh, in terms of projects this week, um, the key headline that we saw was that 82 projects were awarded through Ireland's first ever RESS auction um, across both wind and solar, with Statcraft as one of, sort of the key victors in that. And finally, in worth noting, highlights include reports that Poland's phase out could last as long as 2060 if uh, measures aren't implemented by the EU. Uh, this is in stark contrast to the news that Peabody in the US have risen off $1.4 billion of the world's largest coal mine, which could be more than half its uh, previous value. Uh, we also saw the Global Wind Energy Council release its annual offshore wind report, upgrading expectations uh, and now forecasting that we'll see around 234 gigawatts um, offshore, of offshore wind by 2030. And finally, just going back to Portugal, we were talking about this a bit earlier, um, Portugal's 700 megawatt solar auction will actually oversubscribe 10 times um, and 9 out of 10 tenders in that combined both solar and battery storage. All right, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Um, I think that will end our podcast for this week.